This is Justin Ford for From the Frontline. Tonight we are dealing with servant evangelism. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, would it be correct to draw an analogy between evangelists and ambassadors and mission stations and embassies? Or would an analogy between evangelists and warriors for Christ be more appropriate? Or does it depend on the personality and the location of the particular evangelist or mission? Well, I, I certainly think it is both. Uh, we, as evangelists, are ambassadors. We're not salesmen. We're not politicians. We're not uh, here to debate and uh, uh, work out what's going to be the way of winning the markets by making the message more palatable. We're ambassadors for the King of Kings, and it's his message we've got to uh, deliver. So our mission stations are embassies in many ways for the kingdom of God, and evangelists are warriors in a sense, because to be a soul winner, you've got to be involved in spiritual warfare, and we need to put on the whole armor of God. And so, yes, we're in a world war. We're in a world war of worldviews. It's a spiritual warfare that's very real, and we are representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In previous episodes, we discussed the meaning of evangelism the use of words and technology to evangelize. But actions can also be used to evangelize, can they not, Dr. Hammond? What is servant evangelism? Is this subtle or quieter form of promoting Christianity perhaps more effective in our age? I don't think it's a matter of either or. It's got to be both and. We've got to witness by our lips and by our lives, by our words and our deeds, our faith in action. And the Lord commanded his disciples to go out and heal the sick and to preach the gospel. So there's a real sense where we should be witnessing by example, and you can see that there are uh, servant evangelism ministries. Uh, Red Cross actually started that way. I know it's very secular these days, but the Red Cross was founded by an evangelical Christian in Switzerland, Henry Dunant, with a particular goal of living out what the Scripture had said. And even if you go to the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, uh, museum and headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland, which I've done. Uh, the first item that you see on exhibit is Henry Dunant's New Testament. And you have paragraphs there in English, French, German, uh, uh, the words of Jesus, parable of Good Samaritan, love your neighbors yourself, go and do likewise, love your enemy, um, heal the sick, preach the gospel. So uh, that's in the museum even. Even, uh, well, when I went there last, which was just a few years ago, uh, I don't know if they've removed it since, but uh, the Red Cross started out very evangelistic. Samaritan's Purse is an excellent example of an evangelistic, evangelical ministry that is aimed at providing medicine, relief aid, and uh, doing ministry alongside it. It's, it's expressly in the name of Christ. So I believe we can lead by example and perform very socially beneficial work uh, like cleaning up our neighborhoods, removing graffiti, gardening, caring for neglected public spaces, feeding the homeless, medical assistance, yes, Doctors for Life does that uh, regularly, and disaster response, um, going in whether there's famines, floods, uh, crises of different sorts, whether it's earthquakes, war. Uh, so uh, this can be a means of preaching good news, but I'm afraid I've seen examples where they started that way. And before you know it, it becomes easier and more popular to just focus on, well, who's against you just going around handing out free food and giving free medicine and helping people in this way? So generally speaking, um, the world doesn't mind that because it doesn't have the offense of the gospel. And so there'll be more and more pressure to just just focus on doing good works and don't say anything. And you even see these people putting out this nonsense type meme that 
preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Well, actually, the gospel requires words. And our Lord Jesus made it very clear that we to proclaim the gospel. And it's through the foolishness of preaching, as the world calls it, that, that people are saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so it's very important that we do use words printed and spoken and through art and every other way possible. And it should go along with, with deeds. But if a person thinks, well, I'll just live out my Christian witness, but I won't say anything because, you know, people can be offended if I say something, then we're missing the whole point of the gospel. Our Lord Jesus used words on earth. He did actions, lots. And so did his disciples and, and the chosen apostles. But nevertheless, the proclamation of the word of God and challenging people and calling people to repent and to believe and to be baptized plainly is a vital part of, of evangelism. And we see that in the book of Acts. We see that throughout the epistles. We see it in the gospels. So servant evangelism, witnessing by example, love and action is a vital part of evangelism, but it's not an alternative to the proclamation, preaching and teaching of the word of God, followed up with discipleship, of course. Have you used so-called servant evangelism in your missionary and evangelism uh, yes, no, we, we certainly have, and uh, we, of course, have always used literature, and we have always used Bible distribution and meetings, Bible studies, prayer meetings, uh, uh, all kinds of, uh, even open-air preaching, but we've been taking boxes with love for pensioners and pastors and prisoners in Zimbabwe with lots of food and medical things that are practical, helping people. We've shipped in tons of food and aid and seed to the Nuba Mountains Christians. We've taken in containers of container shipment loads of medicines and uh, various everything from wheelchairs crutches um, walkers bandages uh, medical beds and equipment uh, surgical equipment uh, into Sudan into Angola um, and parts of Mozambique when those were the greatest crisis needs so I do believe it's it's vital uh, for us to be involved in practical levels now our mission is primarily a literature preaching and teaching ministry. And so that's where most of the emphasis is. But we've seen times when delivering food, seed, aid, medical materials. I've trained the first medics of the SPLA, the Sudanese People's Liberation Army in Sudan, and we equipped them with their first 50 paramedic bags. And my wife sewed the first paramedic um, Red Cross armbands for the SPLA uh, soldiers, which we actually effectively started the, the medical corps and the chaplain's corps of the SPLA. Uh, Lenora also sewed the first berets for the soldiers with the SPLA badges, uh, who were the first chaplains of, of the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. Uh, I think it's very important to, when we see a need, do the need. And um, that's why we also started schools, um, primary and high schools and Bible colleges in Sudan. There's, when you see a need, whether it is to put in a water hole and uh, get uh, a pump and to uh, be able to drill boreholes, and help the people practically. And um, I, for example, saw that almost every borehole that they had in South Sudan uh, had huge pools of mud around them where the chickens, dogs, and goats, and every other animal around was trying to get their water amongst the mud pools. And, of course, there was mosquitoes and all kinds of diseases spreading. I thought, it's not enough just to have a, a, a borehole and a water pump there. We need to build a good concrete lip around it, and then we need a drain, we need a little canal to drain to a bigger pool, 
so that instead of water just turning the ground into mud and breeding mosquitoes, that we provide clean drinking water for the domestic animals, cows, sheep, goats, chickens, cats, dogs, whoever's in the area, and also uh, that instead of water being wasted in the ground. So I, I realized it costs a little bit more, but instead of us just building a borehole, I insisted that we put the concrete uh, a trough around it and a drainage pipe um, or, or canal rather made of concrete leading to a much wider pool, which is shallow, but adequate to keep it from getting muddy and dirty because we don't like drinking muddy water and uh, we shouldn't expect our pets to if, if it's at all possible for us to provide them with clean drinking water. So I thought saw that as some of the practical things we could do when we've seen a need uh, to step in and do it. And uh, one of the things that I've seen important is um, – uh, getting people to reform the municipalities because the municipality is the basic uh, foundation of government. In fact, all government should be uh, centered around the municipality, really. And um, I think these uni cities are nothing but covers for corruption and efficiency. But a municipality, a genuine municipality, I, I wrote on how to reclaim and rebuild our municipalities. And uh, we've produced voters' guide pamphlets to also help people in Zambia uh, in uh, Zimbabwe, in Namibia and South Africa to be able to choose wisely when they go to the polls. That's assuming, of course, that uh, the voting is done fairly, but that Christians at least would not waste their votes on parties that are socialist, anti-Christian, secular, and don't have real solutions. The Bible is real solutions for all areas of life. You mentioned that there needs to be a mix of the word and the deed, but do you think that servant evangelism action-based evangelism um, has become more important in the context of a jaded, cynical, anti- or post-Christian society? Um, it's possibly so, but I don't know that you've ever been in a situation where the secular world has been very friendly towards evangelism. So, for example, uh, it was seen by Hudson Taylor and David Livingston and many others that, well, if you go into the pagan societies, whether you're talking about China, India, Africa, uh, it's important that we go there with a medical skill that we try to help the people practically. And uh, that's the first step because generally speaking, heathen are uh, hostile to evangelism because you're suggesting I'm a sinner. You're saying that I'm wrong. You're suggesting our culture's wrong. Uh, you, you're saying there's something wrong with the idols. Uh, what's wrong with uh, bowing to uh, the Buddha statue and all the rest of it? And so, yes, um, I think that missionaries have always found it helpful to have some skill that they can uplift the community, and it is a work that that draws people's attention. So, for example, if we're doing an evangelistic outreach uh, frequently, when we are doing our outreaches, let's just take uh, – we're at the waterfront at the boat and truck uh, island, distributing literature. There's vast amounts of litter and pollution. So we often will task a couple of our people to um, – have plastic gloves and plastic bags and uh, go around and pick up litter. And, and uh, in fact, there's more than litter. It's, it's disgusting pollution in many cases too. Um, and we fill bags sometimes. In fact, I remember Seapoint outreaches where we've cleaned the beaches. I must say, we didn't realize how daunting a task it can be sometimes. You can fill multiple plastic bags. We're talking about these big refuge bags um, with all the debris on, on uh, beaches and sidewalks and parks. and uh, But it's actually quite good that you go into the area and you do this outreach and you're making the place better. So, for example, I've seen this is done by Dumini Peter Victor's uh, strat workers or street workers. So Dumini Peter Victor gave decades to doing inner city evangelism amongst, at first he was just aiming at the night, they call them jawlers, the, the party is going uh, to the different pubs and clubs and uh, 
nightclubs. I don't think they call them discos anymore, but whatever they call them these days. And uh, so uh, in a team, we would normally be a team of three or four each, working each side of the road. And uh, uh, one of us would have uh, literature for distribution. Another would have food for distribution. And, of course, trying to get into conversations. Another would have plastic glove, uh, plastic bag and be picking up litter and pollution. And there's a huge amount on, for example, let's just take Long Street, which is where a lot of the nightlife activity is in downtown Cape Town. And uh, you could see where we'd been because the streets behind were clean and the people were reading literature. And in some cases, you know, these these people who are sitting on the sidewalk, they may be drunk or trying to get drunk. And uh, now they've got something good to eat and, and to drink even. And, and we're going along and we, we're distributing good, healthy things. Uh, my daughter, Daniela, has been involved in what they called the the Red Frogs. They went up to uh, Plettenberg Bay. Now, Plettenberg Bay, they have at the end of matric, at the end of the school leavers, end of the year, the academic year in December, a whole lot of the uh, children from very well-off homes and schools, uh, the Bosch boys and so on, and from bishops, they go up to Plettenberg Bay and they go on what they call the Plett Rage. And they, I think it drugged or drunk out of their minds and they're up late and so on. And so there's these um, outreaches, which my daughter's been part of, where they go and they're basically going around with flasks of coffee and uh, giving the people um, some food and some uh, uh, coffee to try and counteract the effects of all this drink and drugs and other garbage. And in many cases, help them, guide them home or wherever they're staying, uh, off the street so they don't injure themselves and others wandering into traffic. And, and uh, they, that was called the Red Frogs. And so you can be sure, as a father, I wasn't particularly thrilled about my daughter doing this, but I was glad she's part of a good group. And it was, it was a good ministry. And while, as a father, you'd want to protect your daughter from seeing that side of life. I mean, I've come across these characters in the streets uh, vomiting in the uh, gutters. And I've carried some of these drunken characters back to a place where they could be spend night safely, having them vomiting down my back, which isn't very pleasant. Um, and then, and you know, the next morning the person can't remember a thing about it. And I remember when I was in the army and when I was in the fire brigade, the amount of these characters who would be drunk out of their minds, and then next day they say, oh, you know, it was a great party last night. Well, what happened? I can't remember a thing. But they've woken up with this massive headache and they and vomit by the side of the bed. So they know it must have been a great party last night. Can't remember anything of it. And it's bizarre that people like that. But the fact that there are Christians like Reverend Peter Victor and his street workers and the Red Frogs and so on, who go along in the streets and actually show love and action for the people, I think that speaks volumes. Now, that's word and deed. The gospel is given in literature verbally but it's also practical. And even if the guys can't remember much else, they will see the fruit. The Christians came through here and you can see the streets are clean. You mentioned the Red Cross and they're a famous form of servant evangelism or leading by example. Uh, would you say, considering that Jesus and his disciples were healers, that medical assistance is an integral part of evangelism, particularly missions, or are there more important needs to address? I think medical really is basic. In fact, uh, Wrigley, how many times do we read in the Gospels where Jesus healed the sick and proclaimed the Gospel, and then he told his disciples to go and heal the sick and preach the Gospel? And it's been extraordinary how medicine has been a vital part of missions from the very, very earliest. And think of some of the most famous missionaries in in the world, like Dr. David Livingston and Hudson Taylor, they did medical work and ministry, preaching and teaching uh, consistently. And uh, Dr. Kenneth Fraser, who planted the 
first uh, missions and churches, schools and hospitals in the area where our mission established our base in in South Sudan and Moraland and Equatoria. Um, you know, he, there he literally planted the first school, the first church, the first hospital. He trained the first teachers, the first nurses, and the first pastors, and who uh, uh, worked together. And in many ways, many ministries have seen these as the three legs of missions: uh, the school, the medical clinic, and the church. You minister to body, mind, and spirit. So I think that is integral part of missions. And uh, today, I believe we are weaker in churches when we divorce ministering to the spirit from ministering to the mind and the body because it should go together for centuries for more than a millennium and a half the church saw the school and the clinic as a vital part of ministry and that's why almost every mission base doesn't just have a church it has a school and has a medical clinic they go together and you can still see this all over africa i can think of some of the greatest mission stations in Africa, in Koma Mission Station of the Dutch Form Church up in Malawi. The school, the Bible college, the hospital, it's all part of it, and, and there's the church in the middle. And, and that's what we see um, in missions all over. And how weak is it when you've got a group that goes out and open, only opens up a church, the church is empty most of the week, and most of the converts and the church members send their children to the local Philistines to be indoctrinated in evolutionism, Harry Potter witchcraft, secular humanism, and all this other garbage, and critical race theory and gender confusion. And you know, really and truly, how can we not open up schools? And it may interest people to know, those who um, aren't old enough to remember, that when I was born, the vast majority of schools in all of Africa were mission and church schools, the vast majority. And unfortunately, 1960, the year I was born, there started to be this great revolution where governments took over nationalized schools. And I'm sorry to say it's not just that governments stole the schools. In many cases, denominations, especially World Council Church affiliate denominations, handed over their schools to governments voluntarily saying, you know, this is kind of expensive and complicated. Maybe you should look after it. And Christians literally took schools that had been built up over generations by Christians, by sacrificial giving, and handed them over to secular humanist pagans, in many cases Marxists, who took those facilities and used them now for the very opposite of what the Great Commission is commanding us to do. So, so yes, I, I think um, healing, teaching, preaching, it all goes together. There are some problems with servant evangelism in that actions, however inspiring, are not actually explicitly communicating repentance and salvation. Another aspect that is particularly concerning is highlighted by the following quote from a recent article published by AmericanConservative.com titled Apologizing for the Gospel. The article discusses how the Christian history of evangelism and missions, particularly in the New World but also the Old World of Europe, is now being critiqued in terms of Christian supremacy and religious colonialism. Colonialism being the slur de jour along with Nazi and fascist uh, and, and is used by the New World Order to slander their ideological opponents. Here is the quote. You can have your missionary work as long as it is focused solely on providing non-parochial medical, social or educational services and carefully avoids evangelization or any attempts to impose your peculiar beliefs on others. Otherwise, it's Christian supremacy and should be bullied into oblivion with all the force the state can muster. End quote. Dr. Hammond. Two questions. Do you think the wordless, action-based servant evangelism is only of limited use, not terribly efficacious, ultimately toothless? And secondly, what do you think of the accusations of Christian supremacy and religious colonialism? Wow, yes. Well, a lot of propaganda there, a lot of intimidation, attempts to intimidate and distract us from keeping the main thing the main thing. 
The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And our highest priority as Christians is to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, to teach obedience to all things that the Lord has commanded. And so uh, to allow ourselves to be bombarded by this word salad of all kinds of intimidatory language, uh, it, which is basically cooked up in the Marxist uh, critical race theory, uh, Frankfurt School of Marxism. Uh, this, you can just see the Gramsci strategy here. They're trying to intimidate Christians to be ashamed of the gospel. But we read in Book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So we should never end up apologizing for the gospel. Now, if it's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, if it's the gospel that we receive in the Bible, the New Testament, then we should never apologize for it. Now, there is something that is presented as the gospel today, this cheap grace, this easy believism, this Arminian, antinomian, prayer of Jabez, sinner-friendly, egalitarian, uh, Willow Creek type of purpose-driven life— prosperity cult, name it, claim it, and frame it. Well, that one should apologize for. That's small g gospel. That's inverted commas. That's uh, in italics. That's not the real gospel. And there is some pathetic excuse for the gospel out there, which we should reject. And uh, uh, But for example, I've been in the streets and I've been trying to share gospel literature. And most of the time you find especially in Africa, the vast majority of people in Africa are very open to the gospel, grateful to be offered something to read. They normally say thank you and uh, sometimes ask for another one or two for some friends and neighbors and family and so on. And uh, so gospel literature distribution in Africa is actually normally quite quite good and positive. And even Muslims are generally quite happy to take literature from us. But unfortunately, many whites and presumably some from Christian backgrounds are quite negative and they either rude, ignore you, or say no. Or sometimes, as recently I, I had several uh, white people ask me, what is that? And I say, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Not interested. Uh, so at this point, uh, you're wondering what are they rejecting? So I'll sometimes say, why do you say that? And what are you not interested? I tried the gospel. I've heard several times. It didn't work. What do you mean it didn't work? I didn't get that promotion. I didn't get that raise. I didn't win the lottery. That's serious. I didn't win the lottery. I said, that's not the gospel. What, what do you... About. And plainly, these people had imbibed the name it, claim it, and frame it, jab it, and grab it, uh, gab it, and grab it. Um, that whole um, tele-evangelism bunch that, honestly, there's there's a bunch of people out there, some false teachers and false prophets, who have inoculated people against the gospel with their shallow, superficial, materialistic, self-centered uh, Hollywood version of the gospel. And so... It must be clear to people that that's not what we're offering. I'm not trying to get any money out of them. In fact, I've never taken up an offering in 45 years of being Christian. Uh, we're not trying to get them to join our church or group or anything like this. We don't want anything from them. All we're trying to do is share the gospel with them freely. We're giving some very valuable gospel literature. I mean, you take the way the Master Living Waters uh, Africa tracks, uh, they're quite expensive, but they're great materials. And, you know, we've purchased these to give these to people. We've done print runs. I've printed thousands of tracks different times. We've bought all sorts of different great things to reach people. Sometimes we put gospel messages on balloons, handing them to children in shopping malls. We try and get creative, but uh, we're not trying to take anything from the people. We're giving. And yet people are hostile and suspicious. And you can't blame them because there's been a lot of fake, fraudulent, um, and to be honest, extortionist versions of um, 
evangelism out there, which uh, many people are hostile to. The other thing, just recently when we were walking up and down the Seapoint Promenade, the amount of people who questioned, are you Mormon? Are you Jehovah's Witness? And what a sad commentary that the moment you get serious about evangelism, it'll be assumed you must be a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness because they're very zealous about that. Especially when you do door-to-door evangelism, that's the first assumption. You must be JW or Mormon. And, you know, that's a credit to the Jehovah's Witnesses Mormons that they're so zealous and effective, even though their message isn't particularly that good. Uh, But here we have the gospel, and all too many Christians choose to do nothing to reach out to their neighbors. And uh, I believe door-to-door evangelism is very effective. I think one-on-one person evangelism in the streets and literature distribution is extremely effective, and it's the only way you're going to reach most people. So, yes, when they come out with things like Christian supremacy, well, we're not teaching Christian supremacy, but there is no doubt that Christ is supreme. He is the ultimate authority. He is the power. He is the way, the truth, and life. He is the king of kings and the conqueror. He is the creator and the eternal judge. Everyone will have to bow before him. So it's not a matter of saying my religion or my opinion is superior, but the fact is the Bible is the gold standard. The Bible is the truth. The Bible is the rock on which we should build our lives, not the sand of human effort. And uh, <laughs> And you'll tell when the, when the storm comes whether you're built on the sand or the rock. So there's no doubt that God, the creator, is supreme, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the only Savior, the only way, the truth, and life. And there's no doubt that what they're trying to do here is bully us and intimidate us and distract us with propaganda and with all kinds of intimidating words to make us either keep quiet or to give up. And you've got to understand that's part of warfare. So what do you do in a war, you try to distract or you try to intimidate or you try to demoralize the enemy. And so how do they do that? Well, sometimes it's by propaganda. Other times it's by bombardment, maybe artillery bombardment, maybe aerial bombardment. As in times past, like First World War, they used poison gas. In fact, I think that's very analogous to the kind of um, toxic atmosphere that's going on to many campuses today um, where they're weaponizing words and they are uh, intimidating people that you're guilty of a thought crime if you dare to think this, and then throwing horrible words at people like, you know, you naughty, homophobic, bigot, anti-Semite, you, and they keep throwing some kind of adjective at you. Well, we should become immune to this, just like in the army you had to learn to operate even while explosions were going around, even with bullets flying around. And so part of the training would be that we'd be going through the obstacle course with uh, flashbangs, um, stun grenades being thrown around, which is, it's, it's uh, light noise and it won't kill you, but it's, it's disorientating. And in fact, uh, hostage rescue teams use these very techniques of, of um, these um, stun grenades, as we call them. I think some just call them flashbangs. Uh, if you they kick the door in or throw through the window one of these stun grenades, and as it explodes, it's, it won't hurt the hostages or anyone, but it creates such noise, such bright light, uh, that it actually disorientates, and that's all you need if you're coming through the window or the door to, to have that, that moment of, of uh, surprise. So, for example, also, we do this in uh, bayonet training. So if you are, say, out of bullets and you'd write down to now bayonet uh, charging a person, you didn't just practice the physical drills of bayonets thrusting and so on, but it always went with a, a really loud, yeah, and uh, uh, as you thrust, and in Karate, I've seen many a time, they will also use this, they, and and there's this explosive, loud um, um, expression as you're doing it. And part of it is to disorientate and just get that 
momentary second of hesitation on the other side, which gives you your, your opening. And so we need to recognize our enemies are doing all these bombardments on us to intimidate us into either silence or compromise uh, or staying at home. And we can't allow that. We've just got to steal our nerves and say, I'm going to get insulted. I'll get some rejections. They're going to call me bad words. So what? Um, Christ suffered for me and left me an example that I must follow in his steps. I certainly hope that uh, majority of churches do not become intimidated by the loud noises made by the leftists. Um, the Great Commission calls for the whole world to be converted to Christianity. What is the difference between that ambition and that of the globalists who are attempting to bring the whole world under their dominion? Well, um, the one leads to heaven, the other leads to hell. But there are similarities, aren't there? Because uh, interesting how the communist movement began in an upper room with a handful of disciples, just as Christianity began in an upper room with a handful of disciples. And they've also got a goal of winning the world. You know, you have a world to win. Work as the world unites. You've nothing to lose but your chains. Well, actually, they had a lot more to, than that to lose. They could lose their uh, freedoms, their lives, their food, everything. But, um, uh, of course, Karl Marx was a complete hypocrite and liar, and his policies have resulted in some of the worst human suffering and the greatest body count in history, the worst massacres and so on. But yes, so what we've got is we've got Christians seeking to win the world, and so do secular humanists, globalists, Marxists, the New World Order. And just as we are talking about the Great Commission, they're talking about the Great Reset. And of course, for the Great Reset, they need a great collapse. And so their goal isn't so much to lift you up as to pull everything down and make everything breakdown, which includes depopulation, wars, famines, and so on. So yes, uh, the globalists have a goal of not educating the world, but indoctrinating the world. Uh, their goal is not to free the world as we are to, to preach liberty to the captors, release of, to the captors. No, their goal is actually enslavement. So just as we are called to educate the world, to make disciples teaching obedience to all things the Lord has commanded, they are seeking to indoctrinate Conformity. Now, to me, real education is teaching people how to think critically, to ask why. Their form of intimidation is teach people what to think. And so they're after conformity, whereas we'd prefer critical thinking. We'd prefer people to respond like Martin Luther. My conscience is kept to the Word of God. And so we'd like people to be free thinkers who study the Word of God daily, like the Bereans, to see if the things Apostle Paul said were true. And so uh, we want critical thinking, literate reading disciples, whereas, of course, the New World Order wants unquestioning, obedient drones. In last week's, oh, in a recent episode of From the Frontline, episode 230, you described how you were ambushed by the gospel when you strolled down to your local cinema expecting to watch a Hollywood movie, only to discover that the cinema was actually being used as a church venue. In your words, to quote, to be honest, coming from a secular family, I would never have walked into a church. The only way the church could have reached me was to go outside the walls of the church and come and get me in a place where I was comfortable, which was in my case the cinema. That's where I heard the gospel, end quote. Is ambushing a particularly useful evangelizing tactic in the times we live in, given that people have hardened their hearts towards Christianity? By ambushing, I don't mean softening or falsifying the biblical message, or as they call it, baiting the hook. I mean delivering the actual uncomfortable, uncompromising and conscience-searing message in unexpected ways and at unexpected times, taking the public by surprise. Would you say an ambush strategy is what is needed to convey the concept of God's judgment and the good news to modern people, or would it go against uh, Christian ethics doing that? No, it certainly doesn't go against Christian ethics to go where the people are. I mean, Jesus commanded us to, to go to the highways and the byways and compel the people to come in. And so we, we to 
to the gospel is to be resisted. We understand some people resist it, some people disbelieve it. Um, but that it be made boring is unacceptable. We have to be creative, we must be innovative, and that's why Christian ministry has inspired some of the greatest art, some of the greatest architecture, the cathedral, some of the greatest music, just think Handel's Messiah and, and uh, Bach's uh, tremendous work. So plainly, uh, we should be going out and reaching the world. The Great Commission is all about going into the world, going into all aspects of the world, preaching gospel to every creature. It's not to go and build churches and wait for the pagans to come to us, because as someone raised in a secular family, I can testify that we would never have gone into a church or a known religious venue of our own free will. Uh, they had to come to us, and reaching me in the cinema was a very good way. Instead of having an evangelistic rally in their church, having an evangelistic rally in a local cinema was a brilliant strategy because I was comfortable walking into a church. Uh, sorry, I was comfortable walking into a cinema. The cinema was like my church <laughs> before I was converted. And so, uh, yes, I've used this kind of ambush technique on a number of occasions. So, for example... When uh, Desmond Tutu was being enthroned, and it was a mega international media event, we took Mrs. Scarborough's Gospel Defense League booklet, the Archbishop and the Bible, which had what Tutu said on one side and what the Bible said on the other, which is more like contrast than actually comparison. And uh, she printed 100,000 copies. Well, we just read 10,000 copies that week um, leading up to and uh, during that day, most of it on the actual day. And uh, we were just reading these to people as they were coming for the enthronement of Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of Cape Town. And the people, I guess, thought they were receiving uh, the official program or something. It's a beautiful little A6 booklet, purple cover, uh, with the Archbishop's insignia on the outside. And, um, and we hand these to people saying, well, enjoy the show. And people are taking, thank you very much. And God bless you, my son, and things like that. And when they later had this political rally at the Goodwood Showgrounds, where now the Grand West is, the casino and so on. Uh, that was a bit of a political Eucharist and so on, and there were 10,000 people came there. Well, we were just reading the booklets as the people were coming through the gates and just saying, enjoy the show. Uh, so that's one thing. Cape Town uh, in uh, International Conference Centres had a number of events, including they had a sexpo and junk like that, and we've been there with evangelism uh, on the outside, distributing to people coming and going there. Uh, when they had Muslim uh, event in the uh, a massive event, 5,000 in the Good Hope Center. I was there also doing evangelism and even got into the question and answers. Uh, at the uh, Cape Town Stadium, which is where the World Cup soccer was done in 2010, they've had many big events there. Uh, for example, when Lady Gaga came, we did a track specially designed called Going Gaga. And there's a picture of Lady Gaga on the cover. And it, it, it looked at some of her life and background, gave a few details people may not have known, and then started getting into her message and evaluating it with the Bible and starting to challenge people as to where they stood with the Lord. So it was um, a bit of an ambush strategy, uh, and we distributed a good 10,000. Uh, Justin Bieber concert, we printed, a, oh, I think, 5,000 copies of uh, Are You a True Believer? Um, because they call themselves believers. And so handing these out again with a picture of, of Justin on the cover, and uh, we distribute these to them. When the ANC had a big event at Cape Town National Conference Center, we were out there distributing uh, the world's greatest revolutionary, which had a picture on the cover of uh, Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, uh, Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong, and um, uh, Frederick Engels as well. And, uh, of course, when you go inside, you find out, while we spoke about these revolutionaries, you point out they were all failures. But the real revolutionary, the world's greatest revolutionary is the Lord Jesus Christ because his revolution changes lives. And we, we went through, you know, even one of a death, hell, and the grave. And uh, 
born a second-class citizen uh, in an oppressed uh, province of the Roman Empire and, you know, all these sort of things at first. But basically it was designed as the gospel being presented to communists, showing that Jesus actually is the real revolutionary and the others are fakes and frauds. And uh, uh, we had other tracks like The Heart and Soul of Karl Marx and The Heart of Communism and Communist Liberation, which showed that actually it's not liberation at all. So we've designed tracks for different events. And uh, when had the world... Uh, Parliament of Religions uh, at Gooda Conference Centre in 1999, December 1999. We designed a tract of, on the World Parliament of Religions and the Bible. And um, we put there uh, all that the Bible says about uh, the attempts to get religious unity and conformity and New World Order and Revelation 13 and one world religion, one world interfaith religion, one world economic system, one world government, and how that's basically setting things up for Antichrist and calling people to repent and come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and <laughs> what is a Christ in common with Belial and, and so on. So uh, we, we've designed tracks for a variety of, of situations. I, I even designed tracks, for example, on um, escort agencies, the best choice. And we had a whole lot of uh, question, uh, questions and comments from the book of Proverbs in it, which is uh, very damning to... We hand these out outside escort agencies. And in fact, people said, yeah, I thought this was a guiding, it was advertising as to which escort agency to go to. And we were there in West Street, Durban, and handing out these tracks to um, people coming for uh, from soccer and rugby events, and they, they're going afterwards down West Street. And so we, we basically um, uh, did bait the hook. And it looked like the, the covers designed, they looked like they were from worldly pop culture to attract the worldly modern man. But when they get to the booklet or the track, they see a real good fire and brimstone biblical message that's calling the people to repent. So I found that useful because we've reached tens of thousands of people with these targeted, um, very wise strategy uh, tactics. And when you've got a couple of dozen people just reading, Recently, they had a Jehovah's Witness conference also at the Cape Town National Conference Center. And we designed a tract, and it looked, I mean, the pictures, the artwork, it looked like a Jehovah's Witness publication. And uh, uh, we were handing these out to the people, and they were all very thrilled and happy uh, to receive it because it, it looked the kind of artwork and everything they would they would find. But it, it plainly uh, gave the deity of Christ the doctrine Trinity and called them to repentance. So... Um, of course, some people, after reading inside, come out and they try to have an argument with you, which is also good. So we have great interactions coming as a result of this. And uh, I've designed tracks also for Muslims. And, well, we've been at this for 40 years. So we've put quite a lot of our tracks on our website. So if people go on to livingstonfellowship.co.za website, they'll find over 70 of our tracks in quite a few different languages that we've designed, um, many of which have been used for just these kinds of evangelistic situations. Yeah, this um, subversive, almost uh, playful, creative evangelism sounds like um, great fun, and it sounds like it suits the zeitgeist. It sounds like the way to go. Um, in closing, I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night. <laughs>